On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and I'm so excited to welcome back my dear friend, Dr. Jeff Brewer. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's such a blast to talk to you. I always learn so much. I tell patients when I send them your direction, like you're just, just get ready for wisdom. It's going to be amazing. So, <laughs> all right. So we really, I really want to focus about all the amazing resources that you have available because I send patients at least a several a week <laughs> on a regular basis. Like, you know, you really need to focus on this. So I really would like to start with your apps. And so we have one on Eat Right Now, we have the Unwinding Anxiety, and then the Craving to Quit. But if we can maybe just start with Eat Right Now, can you just tell me a little bit about what that's about, kind of how it evolved and, and go from there? Sure. So it actually came serendipitously, as, as many things do. You know, I was developing our, our craving program and was having some people pilot test it. And typically when somebody quits smoking, they gain about 15 pounds. That's the average weight gain because they tend to substitute food or the stimulant effect is gone or whatever. And so I, some of our pilot testers said, you know, well, I've changed my eating habits or, you know, something about eating. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know, it's, it's normal expected that they're going to gain weight. And they said, no, no, no. We, I'm losing weight. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And they said, yeah, I'm applying these principles to my snacking and it's helping me not snack when I'm not hungry. And th this is when my eyes popped out of my head. And so, you know, it, when I put them back in my head, I started looking into how eating, it gets formed in the same habitual process. It's like eating in the absence of hunger, I should say, gets formed in the same process as, as smoking. Because I had mostly been researching addictions in the past. So smoking, alcohol, cocaine, things like that. I hadn't done any work with eating. And so, you know, I, I looked into it and I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is the same habit forming process. You know, I need to look at this more. And so we developed the Eat Right Now program and pilot tested it with some folks in my clinic first. So I started with people with binge eating disorder, you know, because I was thinking, let's start with the extremes. If it works for the extreme ends of the spectrum, then it'll help help for other folks. Yeah, let's just start and, with the hardest group. Yeah. <laughs> go big or go home. <laughs> so, so I pilot tested all of the materials out. I actually remember first writing out uh, the modules and having them read through them. Then I recorded CDs. Do you remember what those are? Yeah, um, I think yeah. so. Those little circular things. <laughs> yeah, frisbee looking things. So we recorded CDs and I would give CDs out to my patients in my clinic, you know, at their visits. And it's like, go listen to week one, listen to week two, listen and blah, blah, blah. And then we created the app. So it's uh, it's 28 core modules. So four weeks where it's like 10 minutes of uh, videos of, you know, kind of a short didactic video, some animations to help explain core concepts. And most importantly, in the moment practices where people go throughout their day. And if they're struggling with a the craving, they can work with it. And one of the things we embedded later was this craving tool where we have people when they're craving to eat food, we, ha we have them go through this, basically this simulated checklist where they imagine eating the food and then, you know, how's it feel in your stomach and all this? And do they have more of a craving for it? And we don't have to go into all the science about that, but basically it, it's, it's based on this reward-based reward -based, uh, learning process where 
the reward value is what drives future behavior. And if they pay attention when they're overeating or whatever, they realize, oh, that's not so good. And it helps reduce that reward value. We're, we're about to publish a paper showing that it takes as few as 10 or 15 times of people using this craving tool for them to actually significantly reduce the, the reward value down or even below zero, below the not eating behavior. Oh, wow. And so all of that stuff's built right into the app. Uh, through the apps, they also have uh, access to an online community that I moderate every week so they can come in and ask questions if they're struggling, you know, those types of things. So that's, that's the core basic framework, you know, some, some modules that they go through sequentially, some in the moment uh, tools that they can use the moments that they're struggling with cravings. Uh, and then this community that they can join and, um, you know, keep track of their progress and ask questions through. Yes, which is also, and I've been to all of it, to the, your online community, to the app and everything. And it's been really fun to see the feedback from patients. So I've had several patients go through even just your freer version there. Um, and, you know, they're like, I just, I've learned so much about myself, but it does bring a lot of questions. We end up talking about food addiction and being an addiction psychiatrist. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is it a real thing? If it is like, can of just, can you define that for us? Because it's kind of questionable in some place spaces that people don't accept it. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not going to wade into the, you know, people are fighting back and forth, you know, mm -hmm. oh, it's this, it's not this. Right. What I'll say is pragmatically speaking, what I find is that there tend to be two categories of people. And so let's start with a definition of addiction. The simplest definition is continued use despite adverse consequences, right? So if you just take that definition, which, um, you know, is, is a pretty well accepted uh, definition of addiction, you can, it simplifies things quite a bit. So if somebody is continuing to eat, overeating, despite adverse consequences, that squarely falls into the definitional category of addiction. Mm -hmm. So, and then if somebody, you know, there are lots of folks who have been uh, arguing about whether sugar is more addictive than cocaine and things like that. We don't need to get into all the details, but because pragmatically speaking, it's when somebody is doing something and continuing to do it despite adverse consequences, it's a problem, right? And right. obesity is a clear result of somebody eating in the absence of hunger, for example. Right, right. And then of course, all the chronic diseases that come with obesity, diabetes, hypertension. I mean, 95% yeah. of my patients are diabetic. And, um, but yeah, that, and that's, that's a great way to frame is like, well, it's a problem, regardless of your definition, if it's addiction, quote, unquote, accepted or not, it's a problem. And these tools will work with it regardless. Yes. Yeah. So fantastic. The, uh, the other thing I'll mention is we find some people who really just struggle and struggle and struggle. This is like my uh, patients with alcohol uh, use disorder. Mm -hmm. Some of them, they just have to be abstinent their whole lives and because of probably because of their genetics and, and whatever the conditioning was that was set up around the drinking that it's just, you know, they're, they're one in and they're gone. <laughs> you know? right. There's no moderation for them. And for many others, they can cut down their drinking to the, you know, where they can pay attention as they, you know, as they drink and they realize, I was just talking to a patient yesterday who was saying, you know, she was really paying attention. She was drinking a ton of hard alcohol at night. And she was realizing after two drinks, it was actually not doing anything. She wasn't getting more of a buzz and she was getting all the negative effects. Mm -hmm. So she was able to just pay attention there and cut back from that to just drinking a little bit of white wine, you know, from mm. these. 
So I see the same thing. So that for the majority of folks, I think that's the case also with eating where they can see very clearly the, the negative effects of eating, you know, processed carbohydrates and sugar and things like that. And compare that to the natural goodness that I think of it that comes with like whole food plant-based diets, right? right? And it's easy for them to moderate this because they simply imagine eating the junk food and what that, how that makes them feel versus eating the, the healthy food and imagining what that's like. For some people, they're just, you know, they are just so much on the, the sugar addiction spectrum, if you want to think of it as sugar addiction, where it's like when they eat a little bit of, of sugar, they're just off to the races, like my, some of my folks with alcoholism, small, much smaller fraction of folks, but they're the folks that really have to kind of, you know, say, not even give themselves the choice where they're like, just, you know, I don't eat sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I don't eat refined sugar. So I just want to mention that as well, mm-hmm. uh, because it can help for people to explore these rather than trying to force themselves into abstinence when they don't necessarily need to, and that's too much for them, or force themselves or, or kind of be in the, oh, maybe I can moderate, and then they just struggle their the rest of their lives. Yeah, so I have two questions about that. So first of all, I have patients who can do both, right? Some they're like, and they're typically my younger healthy ones who want to eat healthier, but on occasion can do a splurge and they're fine. But then I have others who, you know, that are morbidly obese, diabetic, hypertensive. And I'm like, your life really kind of depends on you being absent. <laughs> you know? But then there's this social context, this social complications with trying to get healthier with eating, right? Because it's something we have to do every day. And, but there may be family members in the same household who either want to, I don't know if it's like a, sabotage of the family member or they don't agree with it and they keep that stuff in the house and it makes it really hard for the patient because I'm I'm always advocating for home being your safe zone you know so you don't have to use so much like constant just you know pushing at you in your in front of your eyeballs like hey eat me um do you have any suggestions or advice for people who are dealing with that well here I suggest that people so if somebody's coming to see you for example bring everybody into the conversation so everybody can keep it can have a clear sense of what the goal is, mm. you know, and there's no, there are very few family members that are like, I want my family member to be less healthy, you know? Mm. And so sometimes it's a matter of just helping everybody be reminded of what the goal is, right? The goal is for this person to reduce, you know, uh, reduce their A1C or something, you know, lose some weight or whatever. And what are the things that are getting in the way? And then also in that conversation can be explored some of the hangups that other family members might have around eating healthy, where they're just afraid of it, they don't understand it, uh, or they're just, you know, they're just kind of like, well, I, I want to be able to have my sugar, mm-hmm. uh, where they haven't actually explored the benefits that come from healthy eating, for example. And so there, it's, it's easier if everybody's in the conversation to see what the goal is. And what I do is I break it down a little bit. I say, oh, let's just try for a week. You just see what it's like. You know, you do the experiment with your family member to, you know, try eating healthy and just take some notes, see what it's like for you. Do you, you know, do you get the sugar rush and crash? Do you, you know, are you more irritable? You know, how does your, how do you sleep? All that stuff. And also see what it feels like to be on the same page as your loved one, because there's a, there's a real value and reward in all working together toward a common goal as well. And so that's not to be discounted. That's a piece that can be really leveraged where you bring everybody together and say, well, what's it like to all be on the same team as compared to be fighting with each other? Mm -hmm. So I think those are just some of the aspects that can be played with there. And really it's about helping people experience it for themselves. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, they, they can't be forced into something or doing something 
you know, begrudgingly. It's really about them having to be curious and interested themselves. You're like, whoa, what's it like for me to try this for a week? What, what conceptions do I have around not getting to eat my junk food or, or whatever? Mm, absolutely. And I, I, you know, like the family members are not immune to having, you know, their own kind of quote unquote food addictions and issues. Most of the time they do. I mean, they're usually eating together and, and going through that. It's, it's a really interesting, I do a lot of family gatherings, spouses together because it's telemedicine. So it's some really fascinating conversations. And oftentimes there's some collateral benefits, I call it, when someone switches to a plant-based diet and everybody jumps on. And I've had multiple times where I've had spouses jump in and it's like, hey, you're, I hear your blood pressure is getting low. We need to talk about that. You know, literally, it's kind of frightening um, to think about some things that are so good that they can harm you if you're still on medications, but right. <laughs> it happens regularly. <laughs> um, so that's the Eat Right Now app, guys. I would highly recommend that. That's It's a phenomenal app. Uh, Judd's phenomenal. He's extremely bright. My son is actually listening to your Craving, um, the, the Craving Mind book on Audible, and mm -hmm. he's like, Judd is just He's really awesome. I'm like, I know, isn't it great? <laughs> so anyway, you get a multiple Marvis fan club here going. But um, then we have the unwinding anxiety. So that was so cool. When I first discovered you was through the craving to quit at, because one of my patients had used that. And then I understood this anxiety as a habit. That was like, for me, like, whoa, I never thought of it that way. But it gave me a different way of thinking or approaching my patients. Can you describe what that app is and how that evolved actually? Yeah. So that actually came on the heels of our Eat Right Now program. So as we were uh, working, you know, as more and more people were using the Eat Right Now program, uh, a lot of people were saying, as they were mapping out their habit loops around eating, they were saying that anxiety was triggering eating for them. Mm. And, um, they, and so they started asking, hey, can you <laughs> make a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist, you know, I treat anxiety, but, you know, I'm interested in habit change. But there was something that, that kind of got under my skin and I started doing the research. And it turns out there's this huge literature back from the 1980s. Wow. Um, you know, back when, it, you know, I don't know, what, what were the 80s memes? Like big hair and leather <laughs> pants? I don't, I don't know. Oh, you know, we were in the 80s? What are you talking about? Thinking, oh, parachute <laughs> pants. That's what I'm thinking. Parachute pants. You know, you had the banana clips. Yeah. Definitely big hair party, you know, business front party in the back. You had the mullet. Right. What, a, the, what they call mullet. us the mullet? Yes. <laughs> and fluorescent shoelaces. I remember oh. fat fluorescent shoelaces. Yes. So, Definitely. so back when I had fat fluorescent shoelaces in in <laughs> grade school, uh, this guy T.D. Borkovec at Penn State was studying anxiety and worry, in particular, as a negatively reinforced behavior. And so, when I went and looked at this literature, I was thinking. He's already, he's already made this connection between uh, reward-based learning or reinforcement learning and the negatively reinforced qualities of worry and anxiety. And so I was thinking, well, this is perfect. You know, there's been a lot of research showing that mindfulness training can be helpful for anxiety. Let's see if we can use this as the basis for developing our Unwinding Anxiety app. So same framework. I think there are 30 core modules instead of 28, but it's the same idea, you know, short didactic. Uh, mod video modules, uh, in the moment exercises, um, you know, tools, online community, all that stuff. So we developed the program, pilot tested it, and we actually built into it something that we had learned from the Eat Right Now community, which is I was seeing this stepwise process, this three-step 
where somebody would be able to map out their habit loops in step one. We would use this reward-based learning or this reinforcement uh, learning a quality of, of reward value in step two, having them explore you know, how unrewarding is it to overeat and then have them explore the, what I call the BBOs, the bigger, better offers of stepping out of the habit loops into mindfulness practices. Mm. We used a gears analogy because I'm, I'm a big I'm a bike rider, you know, mountain bike and grew up on a BMX bike and all that. And so we said, well, let's let's build this infrastructure, this scaffolding of these three steps or these three gears right into the Unwinding Anxiety app. So it's slightly different than the other one in that respect because it kind of brings that right into the core of the training. Uh, and then, so once we developed it, of course, I'm a scientist, so we wanted to do the research on it. And we actually started, uh, our first study was an open label study with the hardest patient population that I could think of to work with, you right? You are so funny, yes. So, so guess who was the hardest one? Uh, you and me. <laughs> yeah, right. doctors, we we're horrible. Yeah. Oh, are we? Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, we learned to armor up in medical school, you know, not, not work with our emotions, just stuff it all in the closet. Um, we learned to be martyrs where it's like, oh, I can't help myself. I need to be out there helping patients, you know, mm -hmm. that's why, you know, all that stuff, you know. So, so I was thinking, well, let's do this study with physicians. So we did a study, one, it was the easiest study we ever recruited for because there are so many anxious physicians out there. And two, we just looked at anxiety. We also looked at burnout. And we found that we could get a, I think it was a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores uh, in, in anxious physicians after three months. And we also got a significant reduction in uh, some aspects of burnout, like emotional exhaustion and callousness, which was also cool because in the program, it doesn't mention anything about burnout, but the two are highly correlated, anxiety and burnout. So did our first study there. We replicated that in an NIH funded study, a, a randomized controlled trial of people with generalized anxiety disorder got, I think it was a 60% or 63% or some, some huge percentage reduction there. Uh, and so we're, you know, we're seeing two, two studies. We just did a third study where we looked at uh, this program for sleep, because a lot of times people get caught up in anxiety and worry that keeps them from sleeping. So we did a third study with sleep, also found that it could, in, it could improve people's sleep just by addressing the anxiety. So three positive studies uh, showing that this app actually works pretty well. And so you know, we're still doing more, more research, but so far, you know, we're, we're seeing some pretty good data. And I have to say, you know, it's really nice to see a 60% you know, reduction in anxiety after just a couple of months with a freaking app. You know, right. that's, that's well, great. Well, I'll tell you, I think I texted you that <laughs> I saw a patient and this was like, I don't know, it's been a last year, year, two years, it's been, must've been two years ago. But when I had a patient do the anxiety, came in with really severe anxiety, panic attacks, kind of a new onset, nothing acutely traumatic in the life. I was like, well, and I got two important things for you. It's really, really important, like homework. We can talk about medications. So we, I did prescribe a medication. And I said, but I need you to do this app like your life depended on it, okay? <laughs> I mean, I was really serious. Like the mom approach, she's like, come, you have to do it. And uh, he did, young man, very, very pleasant. And he came back in 30 days and he goes, Dr. Marvis, I have to tell you something. I didn't start the medication, but I did do the app and I feel amazing. His anxiety like went from, you know, the GAD7 high scores down to like nothing in 30 days, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I was like, you won't believe this is great. <laughs> and, I, uh, I remember you, yeah, letting me yeah. know that. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. 
pretty awesome. And I've seen this replicate itself in my patients. So, you know, it's, it's really, um, I don't think people understand the power of something like this. Like, oh, it's just an app. But I was like, but you're really implementing these exercises in your mind. And it's just so easy to use. And I, I think people are almost like, yeah, right. It's just so simple. I was like, no, really, it is just that easy. <laughs> it's just go through the app. And um, so that's really, really fun. And in real world, there, it, you know, I know you got the research studies. I'm like, people, this really works. So if you're a doc out there, definitely send your patients that way. It's, it's really amazing. If you're a patient, you know, or a person who's suffering from that, I just, I mean, that really honed it in for me when I saw that reaction. I was like, wow, this is so cool. So thank you for that. And I'm sure others will as well. But now, so let's talk about craving to quit. And because that is a really interesting thing, because that was your first initial um, app and into the kind of the research you're doing. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how that came about? Yeah. So the behind the idea behind that was we had I done my first clinical study, my first randomized controlled trial with smoking cessation with mindfulness training. I would, I'd compared it to gold standard treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, the American Lung Association's Freedom from Smoking. And we had gotten, that was an in-person study. We had gotten, ready for this, five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. The quit rate. So I was thinking, okay, I'll take that. That's pretty good. And then I realized, you know, this, this habit loop formation or, or reinforcement learning is set up to help people learn things in a specific context. Mm. So people don't learn to smoke in my office, right? <laughs> um, people learn to overeat in my office. So I said, well, can I package my office and deliver it to them in context? And might it be you know, as effective or more effective there? So that's when we started thinking about uh, developing these app-based mindfulness training programs. And we've been fortunate enough, uh, Yale, I'd working, I was working at Yale at the time, they had spun, up this spun off this startup based on some of my neuroimaging research. And the CEO that we hired was this young, very smart um, documentary filmmaker. She had just gone through the Yale School of Management but her previous life, she had been done documentary films. And so she said, I can record videos. I know how to do this. And that was actually what started uh, the idea around the pragmatics of, of putting these short videos together on, in, in an app. So it just happened to be serendipity. Wow. So long story short, so we, we made the program and then we started, of course, studying it. And I have to say the latest study that we published, we were able to, um, we ran, this is an NIH funded study, where we randomized people to get uh, the Craven to Quit app or the National Cancer Institute's Quit Guide. They have an app to help people quit smoking. Mm. But before we randomized them, we brought them into our neuroimaging facility and we scanned their brains as we were showing them smoking cues. This was in collaboration of a, a friend and a colleague at, at Harvard, uh, Amy Janes, who had developed this great smoking cue paradigm. So we, we show that their brains, um, their brains light up in these brain regions that we had previously found get deactivated in experienced meditators. And so we're thinking, well, maybe we, you know, this would be a nice way to target this. So we randomized them to get these apps. We scanned them a month later so we can get this pre and post. And lo and behold, we found a very strong correlation between reductions in brain activity in this default mode network that gets activated when people get caught up in craving and a reduction in cigarette smoking. We also found a dose-dependent response. So the more modules they completed, the better they did. Yet this effect was specific to the Craving to Quit app. The other app, no correlations at all. Really? None at all. In fact, we could get we could account for 58% of the variance. Basically, you know, we could account for 58% of the effect with just three factors. Baseline number of cigarettes people smoke. So the more they smoke, the better they did. 
uh, the amount that their brain activity decreased, and then the number of modules they completed. Whereas wow. no, we got no variance accounted for in the control group. So here wow. we're seeing, you, I think of this as the holy trinity, <laughs> where you line up theory with you know, the scientific holy trinity. Yeah. You line up theory with brain mechanism with clinical outcomes. So the theory wow. that mindfulness would help people let go of their cravings, you know, work with them, the uh, showing of the brain mechanism, and then that leading to outcomes. But ultimately, you know, this, this was borne out on some pilot work that I did. Uh, I remember working at the VA hospital with my patients and helping them. I mapped this out on my whiteboard in my office where I would help them see that cravings were these physical sensations uh, that, that came up in their body and that they would feel like they're going on forever, but they actually plateaued and go away. Mm -hmm. uh, so when, when they can start to see the plateau and not actually smoke to make it go away, but see that they could ride these out, I realized, wow, this is something that we could do. And then that, you know, that became our clinical study in person. And then that, that became the Craving to Quit app. Amazing. And so have you done any of the brain imaging with your other apps? Not yet, but we have some NIH, uh, we have some grants into the NIH specifically to study oh. those because I'm so interested in seeing if we oh can my. see similar effects there. And in fact, this same brain network, the default mode network gets activated in people with anxiety. So when they mm. perseverate, when they worry about the future, it activates the posterior cingulate in, in particular. And also that same brain region gets activated uh, when people get caught up in, in food cues and, and uh, seeing images of uh, high, high, high caloric content foods. How interesting. So that, that is incredible. So, I, so when you're sitting here and you're thinking about all these different, well, I mean, how do, you, how do you say this is the most important thing to research? Because I think there's just so many ways you could go and learn and Oh man, I just, maybe I should go into research, but what, what do you think really too? I'm getting to wonder now, um, where do you decide, like, here's the next best thing, like to go and develop because you've created another book that's coming out and oh, let's just do that real quick. What's your new book's title and when to expect it for folks who can look into it. So the new book is uh, same title as the Unwinding Anxiety app. It's called Unwinding Anxiety. It's coming out through Penguin Random House. Uh, it's al already available for pre-order on Amazon, um, but I think the official launch date is March 9th. Excellent. So that's fantastic. So on Amazon, guys, check it out. It's going to be an awesome book. And um, so did, when do you decide, like how, as a researcher, you know, I'm always interested in, you know, you look at these studies, like someone came up with this idea. Some of those studies you get, like, how one how they get funding <laughs> i'm like this is useless but then there's this other's like oh my goodness that's such a brilliant idea i would have never put that together like how how do you decide what's worthy of your time and expense yeah i think that's a really important question because i could spend a lot of time do, researching things that don't matter so i think this is where i look for a convergence between what my patients are struggling with in my clinic and what the theory is in, you know, in the research literature to see, you know, is there something, is there a gap in the literature and is the same gap something that I can see, you know, pragmatically and clinically in my patients. Mm. So for example, you know, uh, with all of, you know, with anxiety, with smoking, with eating, uh, there's this, you know, there's this heuristic or this um, real, real uh, emphasis on willpower, right? Mm. You know, there's this this idea that willpower is the way to change habits, it actually hasn't been borne out in the literature. And clinically, you know, we have an obesity epidemic. So you would think if Weight Watchers were the way to go, you know, they've been around for 50 years, you know? So right. why wouldn't, you know, if it's gonna work, it's gonna work by now. Mm 
So here's a gap in the in the in the clinical uh, in the clinic where willpower is not helping my patients quit smoking or stop cocaine or stop overeating. Yeah. We're seeing that uh, willpower is more a heuristic than uh, than a clinic, you know, than a neuroscientific element. It, the cognitive neuroscientists don't study willpower because they're like, there's nothing there to study. You know, right. it's just like this this idea that people have that sounds good. Uh, but and but in fact, you know, there's really not a lot of evidence behind it. So there, that's something that we looked at. And the third thing that I bring in is how could we pragmatically target these things? So mm. this is from my own direct experience. I was seeing that when I was learning mindfulness, the the folks, you know, from 2,500 years ago, they were talking about they were using the same language as my patients in terms of getting caught up in craving and clinging and things like this. And in in fact. With the, um, you know, in, in Buddhist circles, the idea was that you could actually work with your craving to overcome bad habits. And so the, the, uh, uh, the, the treatment was already developed. You know, it's mm. not like I had to develop, come up with some new treatment and develop it. It was already there. So that's where I was like, wow, this is a, this is a no brainer to research this. Nobody's really looked into this. Here's the, here's the gap in, you know, here, I see this in my clinic. And here's something that has been, you know, theorized to be helpful for 2,500 years. If it if it were really a snake oil, it wouldn't have survived that long, you know, from a Darwinian perspective. So I just brought all of those together and started, you know, started researching them. Uh, wow. to, and and then the to see the effects, you know, five times the quit rates of, of gold standard <laughs> smoking. That's when I was thinking, wow, there's there's really something here. Uh, it's worth yeah. it's worth really putting more resources into. Absolutely. So yeah, and it just went from there. You know, it's like the same same types of tools. Does this apply? Does this work for eating? Yes. Does this work for anxiety? Yes. It's not like it's going to work for everything. But if we look to see where there are uh, behaviors that that really fall squarely into the reinforcement learning paradigms, that's where I'm going to spend some time to see if we can you know develop treatments and then study those treatments to see if they'll work. I mean, it's really fast. I mean, there's so many potential places to actually apply the general concept of what you've been studying. I mean, it's really fascinating. So now, because we've been speaking as clinicians, and so you've also created a really awesome course. <laughs> I send other, you know, physicians to, and it's on drjud.com. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions around what mindfulness is. And I honestly, you know, I went to Yale for residency, so it wasn't like it was a slouch residency program, but I didn't learn how uh, the reinforcement learning was critical for, for addictions. Like that just mm. wasn't in our, in our teaching. So I don't think there's a lot in the lexicon around reward-based learning and habit change. I mean, that's something that my lab has studied and hopefully is starting to get out there a little bit, but it takes a lot, a lot of time for these things to kind of seep into the literature, especially when it's not the dominant paradigm. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so there, I think um, looking at this, uh, let, me, let me just pause here for a second. Because um, we're taking... Yeah, from no, the, ahead, the standpoint ahead. of being a clinician yeah. and using, you know, like, how do I introduce this to patients? How do I define it? How, how do I move forward learning myself? And what you've done is you've created such an excellent resource and it's a free resource, which is phenomenal. And there's some great other articles too, but anyway, but yeah, so yeah. can you just, so, that yeah, type start, of thing? I'll, so I'll, keep, I'll talk a little bit about this. So I was thinking, well, it's helpful, you know, it, why not get this now that there's enough 
uh, research out there in, in theory out there, why not just put together a short uh, CME course for clinicians so they can learn, you know, what basically the basics of habit formation, because that's helpful for any clinician, mm -hmm. and also how this relates to mindfulness. I also threw a couple of modules in there around uh, clinician burnout, because I think that's important for all of us to understand, mm -hmm. and how things like mindfulness can help with that. So the course is, I think it's seven 20-minute videos. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all free. Uh, people can even get CME credits through Brown uh, University for that. And the idea was just, you know, let's try to help out our fellow clinicians mm -hmm. um, and hopefully help them help their patients really get at the, at the mechanistic components. And the nice thing is everybody benefits there. So if, uh, if a clinician is helping their, well, you know this personally, right. when your patients are doing well, they feel good and you feel good. Oh yeah, that's what I call veggie crack. I think we talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I tell you to eat vegetables, you get better. I get a dopamine release because I'm helping you. And we continue this, please continue my veggie crack addiction. <laughs> and you know, like, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's really cool. And I think I think honestly, when you have more tools that are really working for patients, that burn that is your antidote to burnout. Because I know lifestyle medicine was certainly I hear it over and over again for docs who are, take this approach because they're seeing true healing from literally the foundational aspect of really getting patients off medications, feeling better, living life that they weren't living yeah. before due to illness. I mean, that is truly, I think, the true antidote for well, most cases of, of burnout. So it's, it's, it's really phenomenal to have you use extra tools that you've already created. Yeah. And then there was, there is this one article you wrote about curiosity because I think, I know we're short on time here, but do you just write it tell us a little bit about curiosity? Because I think it is such a really fun article and I learned so much in thinking about it. And I start, because it's like you hint around it in clinic and you, but you, you kind of labeled it and made it like, oh, that's what that is. So I, I think it's really fun. Yeah. So this ended up being one of the main themes of my new book, the Unwinding Anxiety book. Uh, as a tool, I think of curiosity as a superpower. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this article after spending uh, my summer, you know, it's like, what am I going to do over, you know, uh, between, um, so my, you know, I, my teaching in the spring and the fall uh, semester, it gives me a little bit of extra room to kind of think, you know, what do I want to learn, you know, over mm. the summer. So two summers ago, I started getting really interested in curiosity. And it was, uh, I, somebody, I was at a think tank and somebody mentioned that there were two types of curiosity. And I had no idea that there were two types. I had just, you know, from my own uh, natural propensity to be curious about things, I was just like, oh, curiosity is curiosity. But it turns out that there are two types and these are, you know, these have been written about and studied scientifically. One's called deprivation curiosity and one's called interest curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I think of deprivation as destination, right? And it's that itch. It's like when we don't know something, we get that restless itch that says, go figure that out, go find that. Mm -hmm. And when once you get that a piece of information, that itch has been scratched, you know, you're at your destination. But the other type of curiosity is interest curiosity. This is the curiosity that I thought was the only one. Think of that as the uh, the journey or the process where it's like just the joy of discovery is mm -hmm. fun. So it doesn't matter. We don't have to get anywhere. There's no restless, scratchy itch that needs to be, you know, that needs to be scratched. It's basically like just the joy of discovery. 
So I, you know, nobody's really, uh, there's a guy, Jordan Littman, that kind of highlighted the difference between the two in the scientific literature. But I wanted to really just put something together for everybody to kind of understand the difference between these two things because they can be played off of each other. You know, it's not like one is bad and one is good. Uh, deprivation curiosity is reinforced in a negative way, you know, or negative reinforcement way. So it, we can kind of get addicted to checking facts on our phones. So it's not always helpful, but the interest curiosity can actually be brought in to complement the, the deprivation curiosity. And in fact, we can use interest curiosity to help uh, with anything. <laughs> you know, anytime we're caught up in a, in a habit loop, we can get curious. Oh, map it out, what's it feel like, you know, all that. And so that interest curiosity is really a superpower to help us change, change behavior. I mean, honestly, I look at this and I think about young parents and if they could start teaching the kiddos about the curiosity the, the, and think about their children's behavior and the habits and the, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just so powerful with kids and well, parenting. Well, here I would say, have the kids teach their parents, you know, because the, the three-year-old has a natural fascination. You know, the yes. kids stare at a blade of glass, blade of grass for, for 20 minutes. You know, the parents are like, what? That's grass. Like, no, but look at the, you know. Yeah. And so that can awaken our curiosity. And then as parents, the parents can help them keep that curiosity as they grow up. They don't grow out of it everybody wins. Right. A hundred percent. And I will tell you, and as a parent, you can use that to solve problems even for your kids. Like, so just quickly, Jonathan, who's now your newest big fan, um, who had severe dyslexia growing up. And I had this driving force to figure out what it was we didn't know for a bit and then how to help him. Right. So, you know, I was reading books and while I was in medical school and all these different things, and I found the gift of dyslexia and it really was kind of the start and understanding it's like reading about Jonathan. So then once I understood that I used that kind of that curiosity tool to keep Jonathan interested in learning and doing these different techniques. So that's how we did. And he, he, by ninth grade, he was caught up with his peers, went on to graduate college and all these amazing things but that's just one of those things so using that even in yourself to help you solve problems but also igniting that in those kids even when they're struggling with a problem if you can make it interesting and use their natural curiosity on something you can really use it to propel them to do something good so i don't know there's just so many things you could do <laughs> i appreciate yeah. it and but, I, would, I would love yeah. to see the educational system really oh. you know look at curiosity as a way to drive learning rather than, you know, test performance and forcing students to, yeah. to sit in a classroom for X period of time and, you know, learn some material. It's like, how can you make that material come alive? You right. know? And I remember I was in Montessori school for a, no, uh, a couple of years when I was younger. And it, I think that's what Montessori is all about. Yeah. It's just like, let, let kids run around and explore stuff. And it, that was like the best schooling I ever had. So if we could figure out how to kind of bring that forward throughout an entire education, I think we could really transform the educational experience for kids. Absolutely. I mean, I was in high school and yeah, I looked at Montessori, you know, for our kids, we, we were just in a place that we could put them in it. But um, I was in high school and I remember one of my favorite teacher in high school and the most amazing things that I remember learning 
was in my physics because he brought it alive, right? He really, you know, you've done other experiments in school and so, but he had a way of teaching and getting you excited about the, maybe even the most dull experiment with light, but it was just like so fascinating <laughs> how they presented it and really got your natural curiosity. And the whole class was engaged. It wasn't just, you know, the nerds like myself, but it was like an entire, even the jocks were interested, you know? So it was really, it's a skill and it's a, it is something that can be taught how to do that. So. I mean, we really should put a manual together for, for parents and, and teachers. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. But Dr. Brewer, Dr. Judd, we love you so much. And drjudd.com is a great resource. That's where a lot of this can be found. Is there other places people should connect with you, follow you, look for the apps? Where should we go? The website has uh, is a good place to find all of those. So the apps are there. My books are there. Um, I also am on Twitter, not a ton, but I'm on Twitter some. Uh, at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. And I also have some videos on YouTube, uh, some short educational videos. So folks can just look at, I think it's Dr. Judd. Uh, if they search Dr. Judd on YouTube, they can find them there. And there's some really excellent videos on talking about anxiety and COVID and some other things as well. And your Instagram is awesome as well. So we'll put all those links guys below. But thank you again for always giving us your time. We so appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> all right. So everyone just pay attention and uh, please click and check out Dr. Brewer and also order his new book. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you could, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating on whatever platform that you're listening to this podcast. We really appreciate the feedback. In addition to this, I did want to let you know that we actually do video recordings of all of our interviews. And if you'd rather watch them, you can check out our YouTube channel at Healthy Human Revolution. There we also have other resources for you. One in particular I'm really excited about is called The Doctor's Inn. That's where I actually answer questions from the audience and do tons of topics like cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, and just things to help you stay well. So check it out. and. Also, don't forget the HealthyHumanRevolution.com website where you have all the resources you need to actually start and sustain a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet.